If you or someone you know is considering divorce, you may have heard about mediation. What is mediation and how can it help people who are in the middle of a divorce? Well, that's the topic of our episode today. And my guest is Sharon Corsentino, who is a very well-known, well-respected mediator. And she's helped countless families find resolution in the midst of divorce. She's gonna talk with us today about tips to get ready for mediation, what to expect in mediation, and how you can make the mediation process uh, really work for your family. Sharon, thank you so much for taking time to be here today. Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. So I wanna start off and talk about just at, like at a very big global level, what is mediation? And especially this is this pertains to Texas because other states do it differently. So, you know, in our area where we're helping families uh, in the divorce process, you know, what is the process? What does it look like? And what are some of the benefits? Yeah, so mediation, it's a, a form of alternative dispute resolution where a neutral, the mediator, comes in and facilitates communication between the parties and trying to help the parties craft a resolution to settle their case. So mediation is applicable in all forms of law, but as you mentioned specifically, I kind of focus my efforts in family law and also some probate and guardianship and small civil matters. But it really has widespread use and has become a very well accepted technique and an alternative to just fighting things out in the courtroom. In fact, um, many of our courts in our area actually require that parties at least attempt resolution through mediation before they even get into the courtroom. Correct. Yes, it's been so successful and the, the settlement rates are so high that the judges have really um, come to value and appreciate mediation as a means of helping their docket management, um, but also allowing people to realize that they can settle their own disputes, that they don't need a judge to, you know, bang the gavel and make orders that maybe nobody likes. <laughs> That's so true. Um, and so we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I, I want to kind of back up for a second because I know a lot of a lot of people that you know I work with. Um, feel like it, that mediation is going to be pointless and going to be a complete waste of money and resources because they already tried to work it out with their spouse and they can't, they don't see eye to eye on anything. And so why would we go spend time in mediation? What, what do you see actually happening in the mediation process and, and why does it work? I think, you know, one of my favorite things in mediation was is at the beginning of the day when somebody says, I don't know why we're here, we're not going to settle. Because at the end of the day, when we're signing the settlement agreement, it's so gratifying. And it, it's just reassuring that the process works. And I think the biggest thing and the key is having a neutral. Um, I'm not there to take anybody's side. I'm not a judge who can make a decision or, or force someone to do something in a case. But so often what I see, kind of to your point, I'm a, I'm a fly on the wall a lot of times. And I, I think so often people, because of trust issues or just being angry with one another over what they're going through and experiencing, they're not listening to one another. and. I frequently find that people are saying the exact same thing. They may just not be using the same words and they may not be phrasing it in such a way that the other side finds it appealing and, and acceptable, <laughs> you know? And, and so when it's coming from me, it's, it's kind of innocuous. I can come in with a proposal and we can work through it without 
them having to sit across the table from each other and and you know find the tension and the stress and the little microaggressions that that might happen whether it's through you know facial expressions or whatever it might be i think that's such a good point i mean i know you know so often it's just human nature right i mean it's not a judgment we all do it when you've you've been trying to communicate with somebody and not been successful and you know just to hear something come out of their mouth the answer is no like i don't want to do it because you're suggesting it and right. so sometimes when we we have the neutral who says, "Hey, have you thought about this?" It can it looks completely different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think sometimes because of people's lack of maybe the terminology or or even sometimes people are visual and just using words isn't enough. You know, sometimes in divorces we're talking about custody and possession schedules and things like that, and a lot of times people are saying no. And then when we lay it out on a calendar and they can actually visualize what it looks like on a calendar, it works for them. Right. Even though they've been completely opposed to it for months on end, you know, if you slow down and just sort of break things down into pieces, sometimes it becomes more palatable. So so this is really interesting. So one of the things I'm hearing that you really do as a neutral then is to be able to propose solutions that people can hear because it's coming from a different, a different person. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do you think is sort of the magic that happens in mediation as a mediator um, as you're helping kind of, you know, explore options? I think, you know, mediation, the idea is for it to be a safe space to discuss options um, because it's a confidential process and because I can't be brought in front of the court to tell the court what the person was willing to offer or wasn't willing to accept. It, it lends a lot of kind of safety and, and sort of a, a nice um, place to be able to explore options that maybe in another setting they wouldn't feel comfortable doing. And so I think because of that, sometimes people are willing to kind of open their minds and open their hearts and look at things a little more closely and a little more pragmatically of, of maybe this isn't so bad. But, it, you know, if, but if we go to court, by gosh, I'm not going to be agreeing to that when we get to the courthouse kind of thing. So. Exactly. And, and I think that that's, a, you know, there's, there's good reasons for that. I mean, by the time you get to the courthouse, you've had to go through such an expensive process, maybe even taking depositions and discovery and, you know, the willingness of people to make agreements by, at the courthouse can really be diminished um, as opposed to if we can do it a little bit earlier before we have to go down all those roads. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think to what I see really often in mediation at the beginning, kind of once everybody becomes comfortable with the process, it becomes less um, obvious. But sometimes in the beginning, people are really worried about putting a proposal out on the table and worrying about what the other side is going to think. And I always tell them, it's my job. Like, you don't need to worry about going, what's happening in the other room necessarily or trying to predict their next move and their counter proposal. Make an offer you're comfortable with, and then it's my job to go in the other room and, and try to narrow the issues and, and kind of sell it, so to speak, even though I'm not an advocate for that person, but to, to present their proposal 
just in a neutral form and see what agreements we can reach. I know so often we'll go into mediation thinking, you know, this is going to be the issue, whether, you know, it's possession time or maybe it's child support or spousal support or whatever. Um, you know, this is going to be the issue. And and in working with you, like, that's, that doesn't, end, what we think is going to be the issue doesn't end up being the issue. It ends up being something else. Yeah, it's always really interesting because, you know, thankfully a lot of attorneys do advance work and send me information and I always review it. And the attorney will tell me from their perspective what they believe the issues are going to be. And sometimes you're right. It's not at all. It's, it's something else that wasn't even on the radar. Or sometimes things just come up last minute um, because the other party maybe hasn't thought about it and hasn't considered oh, this is an issue that we need to talk about today. So certainly, um, I mean, not every case settles at mediation. There are those that reach an impasse. What are, you, what are some common characteristics that you see in those cases where the parties aren't able to settle? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, that's a tough one. It's kind of all over the map. I think sometimes when you have really limited issues, a limited number of issues, it's almost harder to settle because there aren't as many things that people can compromise on and negotiate. Um, you know, the, the pie only has two pieces. There's only so many ways that we can move it around. So I think those are the tougher ones to resolve versus when we have, you know, a whole giant pie with multiple slices and we can mix it up different ways and, and come up with creative options and ideas. I always love the idea of expanding the pie, right? Yeah. So looking looking beyond just what, and you're really good at that. You're good at helping us see maybe some other things that we need to throw into the mix for conversations. Um, all right. So we talked a little bit about like the, the people that do are able to reach resolution. Um, I want to focus on maybe some of those traits. Like what, what do you find really helps people be prepared when they're coming into mediation? I think that people who've really kind of done their homework ahead of time have a better opportunity to get their case resolved. Now, certainly sometimes we're doing homework on the fly in mediation and people are having to go out and find some information while I'm in the other room working. But for the most part, I think if people have really kind of come to understand what the potential options are and what the potential outcomes are, then they're better prepared to negotiate and make compromises in mediation. And so for instance, if someone is really, really resolute about wanting to keep the house, have they explored whether they can afford to? Um, have they made a budget? Have they contacted a mortgage banker to talk about what their options are if they have to buy out the other party or if they qualify or is it gonna be a manageable payment? All those things. And I think the more homework people are doing in advance of kind of evaluating their own needs and their own interests, then they have a better opportunity to get it resolved in mediation. That's really good advice. Um, and I know, you know, one of the things we tell people too is to make sure you, you know, spend some time the day before getting all the values updated because that's one of those things that um, we'll need to do. Usually the discovery and all the documents were exchanged well in advance of the mediation. So, you know, be prepared to provide us with the most up-to-date values. Absolutely. I think um, having, you know, nothing's worse than trying to remember your password on the fly while everybody's staring at you. And so kind of having ready access to information, whether it's bank accounts, retirement accounts, um, even the child school calendar, 
things like that, you know, we find ourselves looking at, well, when is fall break? Is there a fall break? When is spring break to evaluate discussions in regards to possession schedules? But uh, certainly on the financial side, having current balances because most people don't have a static bank account that just stays at the same balance all the time and, and they're paying bills and they have things flowing in and out. And we need to work with updated information. So one of the things I know people are anxious about when it comes to mediation is being being in the room with their spouse the, for the whole day. And, and they're always a little surprised to learn that that's really not how we do it. So I think it would be helpful if we kind of back up a little bit and let's talk about you know, what, hap what happens on the day of mediation? What should they expect? Um, and, you know, kind of the flow. What do you see as the general flow of how the day goes usually? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, other states do it other ways. Uh, other states more commonly have joint sessions where people are really sitting across the table from one another and having these conversations, but that's not how we typically do that here in Texas. And so generally the parties are in separate conference rooms and I shuttle in between and they may go the entire day and not see one another and not encounter one another unless they accidentally meet up at the coffee pot or <laughs> on the way to the restroom or something like that. And so I just shuttle back and forth, bringing back and forth the proposals, which I think also lends to the comfort of not having to have those awkward conversations and not having to sort of reveal all your cards, so to speak, right in front of the other party. Yeah. And uh, online, since for the past two years we've been on, on Zoom, we they have breakout rooms. So I'm able to set up virtual conference rooms for each side. Um, one, one thing I have been doing a little bit differently in the Zoom uh, forum is I've been bringing people in at the very beginning just to do a joint session to go over my stuff. So just to explain my process, my procedures, what to expect from me, and some technology tips and things like that. But we don't discuss anything case specific when we're when we're in that joint session. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to that because I think people can be really nervous and tense when you're in front of the other side <clears throat> and in front of their attorney. I mean, the lawyers tend to make people a little tense. So, you know, it being in separate rooms really allows you to like, you know, move into the creative thinking space, the problem solving, uh, you know, part of our brain. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, definitely. I think too, the, the unexpected benefit of Zoom, which we didn't necessarily see coming when all of this started because it just was born out of necessity, but even a lot of people find comfort in being at home in their living room with their dog or their cat and in their pajamas. And it's just, you know, a coziness factor where they're more comfortable talking about things. And, and there's benefits to being online and in person. Um, benefits and disadvantages, but overall, I would say it's working. Do you find people are mediating in the same house at the same time, but maybe in different bedrooms? Occasionally. That hasn't been happening as frequently. At the beginning of COVID, certainly we were seeing that a little more often, and, and I always felt kind of awkward about it, even though I had them in separate breakout rooms. I mean, certainly being within the same household without me there shuttling in between it it's 
unusual, but I don't see that happening as frequently now. Um, one of the things we've talked about a little bit is kind of the privacy factor that what happens in mediation is, is protected. Of course, <clears throat> when we talk about Zoom, you know, I think of the Zoom hearings at, that have been broadcast on YouTube, which is the total opposite. And even if it's not being broadcast on YouTube, hearings are public forums. I mean, they, you know, anybody can walk in and, you know, listen to the trial and listen to all the things that are going on. Um, what do you do to protect that privacy? It, you know, sometimes um, people, somebody may want to record the, the mediation or something. How do, you, how do you kind of insulate and protect that privacy? Yeah, certainly I don't permit anyone to record and I, it's in my rules. I actually have it in my name at the bottom of my screen not to record and, and I don't record any of the sessions. And the way that I have my security features set up in Zoom, nobody, none of the chat screens are saved or anything like that. Certainly I can't prevent 100% um, if somebody wanted to record something by another device, I suppose that could happen. But really they would only be recording themselves because right. <laughs> um, once I'm meeting in a breakout room, it's just whoever's in the breakout room is the only people that can see or hear what's being said or done. So there's really no benefit to recording it um, Have you seen a difference in the rate of settlement between in-person mediations versus Zoom mediations? I haven't. Um, I haven't seen a decrease and I haven't seen an increase. It's really stayed about the same. It's been pretty remarkable how people have just pivoted and um, acted like, everyone sort of acts like we've been doing it this way all <laughs> along, but it's been working and even as, as mandates and things uh, relax a bit. I'm not seeing people wanting to go back to in person. I think everybody's adapted so well. And so while we're, a, you know, you're, you're one of the best mediators in our area, we're so lucky to have you um, in North Texas. Are you finding that you're getting requests to mediate outside of uh, our little geographic area? I am. Yes. It's been interesting because I, you know, previously when I'm in person, obviously I only have so much time to travel so far in a day for mediation, but now I've been picking up cases out of the panhandle in West Texas and down in Central Texas. So it's been nice. It's It's been fun to meet new lawyers and new people. And That's great. Um, I want to shift a little bit and just talk about, you know, you personally, about kind of your growth into mediation. I first met you when we were um, young, you're younger than I am, but young family lawyers kind of um, starting off. And I know you were, you did uh, family law practice for a number of years and eventually changed um, into doing mediation full time. And so I'd love to kind of hear, you know, how things differ from being the lawyer in a case versus being the mediator and what you love about your job now. I Well, I tell people all the time, I'm the accidental family law attorney because when I went to law school, I never expected to practice family law. So it, it was not really even on, on my radar. I never took a family law class. I just was really eschewing the whole idea and I wanted to do something more transactional and, and sort of had my sights on that. And uh, when I graduated from law school, really it was a function of the economy. I needed a job and a family law position came along and I took it and it turns out I really loved it. I loved working with people. I loved being creative and trying to come up with solutions to get their case resolved and, you know, trying to just assist them through a really difficult part of their lives and make it as, 
painless as I could along the way. And so, of course, early on in my practice, I began attending mediation with clients and representing clients in mediation. And I just fell in love with the process because I think that unfortunately family law is just not well suited for the courtroom it's it's by necessity but not by design and so i think people were feeling a bit disenchanted of taking their case all the way to the courthouse and coming out with a resolution that maybe didn't fit their family and so i felt like in mediation we were able to craft that more and and be more thoughtful about it than just litigation scorch the earth and um, come out with whatever you come out with from the courtroom and so then along with being introduced to mediation i was introduced to collaborative law and that's really i think when you and i first came to know one another is in the collaborative law field and i enjoyed practicing collaborative law um, I like the the concept of you know this team approach of trying to get cases resolved and letting families decide what works best for them. And so, I, I, as I began sort of evaluating next steps that I wanted to take in my career, I just kept coming back to mediation of how much I loved it and how much I really wanted to focus a part of my practice on it. And decided in 2016 to just take the somewhat radical step, I suppose, of, of quitting litigation 100% um, and focusing solely on mediation. So I'm now going into my sixth year and there's just been no looking back. When you're working with a family in mediation, um, what do you wish the, the lawyers knew? I mean, what can lawyers do better to help maybe prepare their clients for the day that, you know, it's, it's a big investment. It's a, there's a lot of time, a lot of money, um, and there's an op a big opportunity to, you know, walk away with that settlement. W what can lawyers do a better job of? I think setting expectations and I think making sure that people really understand their finances, that they really understand their maybe work schedule limitations, things like that when they're evaluating possession schedules, and, and just sort of overall understanding the components that are gonna need to go into a mediated settlement agreement. And so whether it's the attorney actually preparing the party for all of that, or whether it's another professional, I think it's really useful to, to have those conversations ahead of time and you know, there's a lot of people out there who haven't ever put together a budget, who haven't checked their credit in a long time, who haven't really looked and read through a possession schedule. And so putting those tools in their toolbox ahead of time to begin considering what their options are, I think is very helpful. I think that's great advice and it really helps empower the people who are sitting there needing to make the decisions if they have you know, thought through and had considered the consequences. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, you want uh, a 50-50 parenting schedule, but if you're traveling all the time, that may not be realistic and there may be a, other options to look at. Right, and you know, even if they're not traveling all the time, do they, are they a medical professional who has to be at work at 6 a.m.? Are they a firefighter who, you know, has this, three days on, two days off schedule. Right. Um, so there's just a lot of things to think about and how can you craft that to work versus just applying 
this standard possession order. And it's not, I mean, certainly these things can work even with crazy schedules, but mm -hmm. you need to know what those backup plans are. How are you going to make that happen? And if you have those, those, uh, you know, thought those plans worked out, it certainly is a different conversation. Definitely. And I think, you know, from a, from a childcare perspective, from a, um, just timing and exchange of when, when are we picking up and dropping off our child? All of those things are good things to think about before mediation day. So there are a lot of ideas that people have about mediation. And I think um, one of the ideas is that, you know, well, we won't hire lawyers, we'll just hire a mediator. Um, what, what do you tell people when they call you with, you know, just looking to hire a mediator instead of lawyers? Yeah, it, it's a common misconception that I can wear both hats because I am an attorney and I am a mediator. In Texas, you don't have to be both. Um, there are mediators out there who are not licensed attorneys. So I, I think a lot of people reach out to me thinking that I can wear both hats, that I can effectively help them resolve their case and then turn around and change hats and draft all of the legal documents for them. And ethically, we're not permitted to do so. So if I'm serving as the mediator, I am only serving as the mediator. The only document that I can draft for people is the mediated settlement agreement. And otherwise, I encourage them strongly to hire an attorney to draft their final decree of divorce and any of the ancillary documents that need to be done. But when people reach out to me saying, we, we're filing for divorce and we need to come to mediation. Typically, I ask them uh, what what type of agreements they've already reached. I mean, I, I'm getting a nutshell version, but <laughs> you know, sometimes people tell me, oh, we've sat down at the kitchen table and we figured it all out. We just need somebody to paper it. And I'll tell them, well, that's not my role. Uh, and then it typically leads into the conversation of, well, then can you draft our document? We don't need you as a mediator, let's just serve as an attorney. And I'm, I made the decision when I switched to my mediation practice that I was not going to take any legal cases anymore representing individuals. So, so, so for people who really are in agreement on everything, um, mediation isn't an expense they need to incur. What they need right. to do is just hire the lawyer, at least one of them hire a lawyer to draft the documents. Right, absolutely. I tend to tell them, you know, congratulations, you don't need me, um, <laughs> that you're ahead of, of the, the game, that you don't need me to get involved unless you do run into a dispute. I, you know, I always tell people it's not out of the realm of possibility that maybe there's something that needs to be incorporated into your legal documents that y'all haven't considered. And maybe you will need a mediator at some point, but hopefully not. And I think that there's just a, a general misconception out there that it's a way to save money and that it's a way to just avoid the legal process. And uh, as we're talking through this, I, I realize I think the confusion really is the idea that you can hire one lawyer, the two of you can hire one lawyer to prepare the paperwork. And, and our ethics just don't allow that. Right. And so a mediator is not the one lawyer that both of you can hire. Um, one of you can hire a lawyer and work through that lawyer to draft the documents, but that lawyer is going to be representing one party. And so oftentimes it makes sense that they need to have their own lawyers, but there are certainly lawyers who are committed to helping people 
will find resolution and not drum up the conflict. <laughs> Correct. Yes. I like to think I'm one of those, um, but certainly we, you know, we do stumble into conflict and that's a natural part of a divorce. And that's where the mediator comes. Uh, Correct. Come full circle. Um, are there cases that are not suitable for mediation? Well, certainly if there are cases that involve um, family violence and if there's an active protective order, we have to consider the safety and, and sort of the, the overall position of each party. It doesn't mean that we can't mediate those types of cases, but definitely want to make sure that the proper safety parameters are in place and, and that it's not being used unwittingly as as a tool to just further inflict harm on a party right. and so we have to be cautious about that and otherwise i think all cases are suited for mediation and and like i said even cases involving family violence they're they're not they're not barred from coming to mediation. You just have to evaluate what safety parameters have to be. In exactly, and, um, and when we have this conversation, um, you know, the, the safety of the parties involved is always paramount, but I always think in the back of my head that litigation is not necessarily a safe place for people involved, you know, in a case with family violence either. No, it's not. I mean, it's certainly you're you're going to a public place, you're you're airing all of the secrets and, and mm -hmm. private things that have happened in your family and, and that makes people very vulnerable in and of itself. And then if you have the added um, family violence component, I, I mean, that's very harmful. It can be very volatile. Um, all right, so as we kind of come to the end of our time together, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of maybe give a message or of hope for somebody who's in that divorce situation and, you know, they don't see a way out. What, what would you tell them? I think, you know, people just have to be open-minded and optimistic and, and most of all patient because a lot of times when people have made the decision that they need to get a divorce, they're they want it over yesterday you know they're they're ripping off the band-aid and and just ready to move forward and it can unfortunately be a really slow process and so i think people just need to be patient they need to stay optimistic and they need to recognize that there are things like mediation and other types of alternative dispute resolution that they can use to their advantage to try to resolve their case in a way that that works for them and so exploring those opportunities and and being open-minded to the process helps tremendously great words thank you so much sharon if you want to learn more about sharon corsentino and about her mediation practice we'll include a link to it uh, in our show notes below and we invite you to subscribe uh, to the hargrave family law channel so you can stay uh, tuned in for future episodes where we're really committed to helping provide resources for families who are in the middle of that divorce transition thank you